Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. We gather together on Sunday as is the tradition of the church since Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so the first day of the week has been known since then as the Lord's Day, time for believers to gather together as a corporate body of believers to worship the Lord. Worship is often a misunderstood term. People try to qualify or quantify worship many different ways, but worship is ultimately a matter of what's going on between our ears. It is what our mental attitude is. It has to do with our own uh, internal focus on the Lord as we look at uh, life and we look at the creation around us. We look at the events of our life through the uh, framework of the Word of God. Uh, The Word of God is called the mind of Christ. And so as we think in terms of the Word of God, as we think in terms of the Bible, then we are indeed thinking as Christ thinks. And so the focus of Worship is to learn the scriptures so that we can think as God thinks and thus honor and glorify him by the way in which we uh, react and interact with all of the circumstances of our lives in such a way that we think as God thinks and that we act as God, God acts and have the character of Christ formed in us through God the Holy Spirit. One of the highest forms of worship is the Lord's table, which we observe here on the second Sunday of each month, and that is today. And the Lord's table is uh, one of two ordinances for the local church, baptism and the Lord's table. Baptism relates primarily to salvation and is a one-time event in the life of a believer where they, they focus on what Christ did for them. Baptism is a picture of our positional identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection whereas the Lord's table is an ongoing depiction of our and a remembrance of our salvation and what, was, what Christ did for us in salvation. Scripture says that when we come to the Lord's table, that when we come together to worship, whether it is individual worship, whether it is corporate worship, then we must be in fellowship with God. Sin separates us. Once we are saved, sin does not uh, affect our eternal status, Sin does not affect our uh, salvation, but sin does affect our ongoing uh, fellowship. So that when we sin, Scripture says we grieve, we quench the Holy Spirit, and the way to recover is to confess our sins, to admit our sins to God the Father, and we are instantly uh, cleansed and forgiven of all sin. And so there's an immediate restoration to fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that we are to worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth, and so therefore it is necessary for us to make sure that we are always prepared spiritually by being uh, in fellowship uh, for the study of God's Word and for worship. So we begin every service with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. So let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful, so thankful that we can come together in freedom as a body of believers to focus upon you, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us in your word, to see how your word uh, challenges and changes us as God the Holy Spirit applies it to our life, to take time to reflect and to remember all that you have provided for us in your magnificent grace for our salvation and for our spiritual life and to be reminded that the real issues in life are issues that are spiritual that have to do with our relationship with you, our orientation to you, and our orientation to your word. And so, fathers, we come together to worship as a body of believers. Our focus is on you. It is not on how we feel. It is not on our own experiences. It is upon what you have to teach us in your word. And as we reflect and respond to that, through through singing and through other aspects of worship, such as giving and the Lord's table, our focus is always directed to you and to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. So, Father, we pray that all that we say and do this morning will honor and glorify you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The night before the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was the central uh, feast in the, uh, in the history of Israel because it focused their attention upon how God brought them out of Egypt, uh, redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and brought them to freedom and brought them into the promised land. Uh, the Exodus event itself is a tremendous depiction of God's grace and of his power and of his ability to solve whatever problems face us as long as we are walking with him and following his word. In the Exodus event, he uh, depicts in a very physical way uh, the whole doctrine of redemption, purchasing from slavery. And this is the historical background for the Passover meal. And the two central elements in the Passover meal were the lamb that was sacrificed, a lamb that was observed, a lamb that was tested, a lamb that was to be without spot or blemish, that was then sacrificed and then uh, roasted and eaten by, by the family. The other element in the original uh, Passover was the unleavened bread. The bread was unleavened because leaven depicts sin in the scripture because of the way it permeates and affects everything uh, everything that it touches and in the same way sin in many ways that are unintended uh, affect everything around it and our lives are permeated and destroyed because of because of sin and so the exodus event in the and the passover event depict god's grace deliverance of the jews from slavery in egypt and that that bread, the unleavened bread, is a depiction of the way he would provide for our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread representing his, his humanity, the fact that it was unleavened, de- depicting that he was without sin. As the, after that first Passover event, which was eaten in a hurry, and as the Israelites uh, observed it in remembrance of that original event, they added to the meal various, uh, various elements, and one of those was uh, a cup of wine. And over the uh, years, they added four different cups of wine, four different toasts, 
in the course of the meal, each one had a different meaning, a different significance. The third one was called the cup of redemption, the cup of redemption, and it was the unleavened bread from the Passover meal plus that third cup, the cup of redemption, that the Lord Jesus Christ took that night out of the context of the whole Passover meal and assigned them new meaning and new significance. Just like the Passover meal itself looked back in time to God's provision, his grace, his deliverance of the nation Israel from slavery in Egypt, so the Lord's table is designed to look back at the at our deliverance from sin, our redemption from sin, and the work that Christ did on the cross. So the bread represents his humanity. The fact that it is unleavened represents his qualification to go as a as sinless, to die on the cross, and to become sin for us, uh, that we who that we might uh, be delivered from sin and the righteousness of God would be found in us. And then the cup represents the blood the shed blood, uh, the death of Christ on the cross on our behalf, the payment for sin. So these two elements were then invested with new meaning on that particular night, and the disciples were told that they were to do this in remembrance of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. So the whole focal point here is on memory, on remembering, on realizing that that all of us, no matter what our gifts, talents, abilities, no matter how great or wonderful our personality is or maybe not, uh, that uh, it doesn't depend on any of those factors, that our salvation is all dependent on one thing, and that is what Jesus Christ did. And so we're all equal before the cross. We are all equally under the penalty of death. We are all equally sinners, and we are all equally fallen but it is the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross, his righteousness that matters. And when we trust in him, that righteousness is given to us so that we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to God's mercy in imputing Christ's righteousness to us. That is the basis for our our justification and our salvation. This is a doctrine that has been known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but unfortunately is not clarified as much today as, as it should be. So the Lord's table is not for just anyone. It is for anyone who has believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and shouldn't be restricted by church membership or church affiliation or any other human factor. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are to observe the Lord's table on a regular basis according to Scripture. And so if you are here this morning, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you should feel free to participate. However, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is perhaps an opportunity for you to realize what the message of of grace is, the gospel of grace, the good news that Christ died for you, and that by simply trusting in him, you can have eternal life. So the Lord's table is to be entered into by anyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and also in fellowship. So since we have already had silent prayer, unless you have uh, just recently uh, slipped out of fellowship, we will not uh, have silent prayer again, but uh, we will begin with prayer. As we go to the first element, the, uh, the bread, I'm going to ask Doug Daly if he would please come up and return thanks for the bread. Father, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us, that you 
made the ultimate sacrifice and sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. <clears throat> we pray as we commemorate that today that uh, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind things we have learned so this will be meaningful. We thank you for the bread, Father, which represents Christ's uh, perfection and going to the cross, represents his body, which he gave as a sacrifice for us. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. In the course of the Passover meal, they came to a portion where the host would take a some of the unleavened bread and he would break it, pass it out to those in attendance, and they would uh, partake of that. Jesus took the bread and he said, This is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Near the close of the meal, they would take a third cup of wine, and this cup was called the cup of redemption. It is the deep red color of the wine that is uh, analogous to the color of blood, the shed blood of Christ on the cross, which in turn is a metaphor for his death, his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross during those three hours from 12 noon until 3 p.m. when God the Father imputed to him all the sins of the world. And it was at that time that he became the sacrifice that is the basis for the new covenant. And so it is the the cup that represents the new covenant established by his death on the cross. I'm going to ask uh, Doug Karn to come up and return thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to formally remember the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross when, as he went to the cross and had the sins of the world poured out on him and to judge. He became our substitute. Now, Father, as we take the cup and remember and reflect on the blood of Christ, reflecting the work of our Lord on the cross, we pray that you will honor and bless the cup to his glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup. The, he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. When the disciples completed or ended the observance of the Passover, they sang a hymn. The hymn that we sing is number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, we'll sing the third verse softly, then crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. Giving is very much a part of our worship. It's part of our spiritual life. Scripture teaches that uh, giving is not based on any sort of external compulsion, but is to come freely from our own soul, ex- an expression of our own gratitude for all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, and an expression of our desire to support the teaching of God's Word, both in the local church as well as through missions. 
Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful that you've provided so much for us, that you have given us so much, that you've given us everything we need for our spiritual life and for our salvation, that the work of Christ on the cross is sufficient for all things. Father, we're thankful for all the material blessings you've given us, and we give these gifts now as simply a token of our appreciation for all that you have provided for us. And we do so in for the purpose of glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to God's word, let's ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and though at times we take that lightly, we take it for granted because it is such a common thing for us to uh, have a Bible, for us to be in church, for us to have easy access to your word, and yet throughout most of history, that has been a rare thing. And for believers to have access to a completed canon of Scripture in their own vernacular is such a tremendous privilege that we dare never take it lightly and that we should constantly be reading, studying, immersing ourselves in your word that we may learn to think as you think that we can glorify you in our lives. For it is in your word that you have revealed yourself to us, you have revealed to us who we are, you have revealed to us your plan and purpose for salvation, the blessings we have in the spiritual life, and you have given us a tool for being able to understand uh, the outworking of your plan in history that we may interpret the events, the circumstances, the uh, various events of history in a way that uh, is consistent with your word. And so now as we study your word today, may we be again reminded of the riches of your grace, your tremendous forgiveness for us, as well as the fact that we are all ultimately accountable to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're in a new chapter in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20 doesn't even mention Elijah. We've been studying Elijah for several months now as we started in 1 Kings chapter uh, 17 and 18, 19, going through uh, those particular events. And now we come to chapter 20. 
There's no mention of Elijah, but Elijah is very much in the background. We focus in this chapter, though, on what God is doing in working out his discipline on the northern kingdom of Israel and specifically on the house of Ahab. And this fits perfectly within the flow of what is taking place uh, between chapters 18, uh, which focused on uh, the event at Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah had his uh, great confrontation with the priests of Baal and the Asherah, and God brought, God brought down fire, or Elijah called upon God, and God uh, brought down fire upon the altar and vaporized the altar and all that was there as a sign that he was and is God. He is the eternal God. He is not uh, some regional deity. He is not some idol. He is not someone who is at, in any way on par with the Baals worshipped in the ver- various fertility religions and the various polytheistic schemes in the in the Old Testament. And the focus of that, if you remember, is that God is showing that he is God, he is the Lord creator of the universe, and he is in control. And it is that theme that continues throughout these next two or three chapters, and God is making this uh, clear in several uh, interesting ways. There's some rather odd events that occur in chapter 20, but the focus on chapter 20 fits within this theme. He is still showing to Ahab that he is God. This is an expression of God's grace. God continues to reach out uh, to Ahab to challenge him with the truth of his existence. And it just is a tremendous testimony for us and a reminder for us of God's continuing grace in our lives that even when we are disobedient, even when we are rebellious, even when we ignore him, uh, nevertheless, God continues to reach out to us in grace, and there is always the opportunity for us to recover and to be restored to fellowship, but there is a warning, an implicit warning, and that is that if we push things too far, that we can come under the sin unto death, and God will then uh, discipline us through the sin unto death and take us out. So what we see in this chapter are the two, an emphasis on these two different doctrines. On the one hand, the grace of God, and on the other hand, the judgment and the discipline of God for those who are disobedient. And so if I were to pick one word that sort of focuses our attention on the key doctrine in this chapter, it has to do with obedience. Obedience. Now, there are those within the grace camp that emphasize the grace of God that somehow have gotten the idea that obedience equals legalism. And that's just not true. That shows that one does not understand either obedience or legalism. Legalism is the idea that by doing certain things, going through certain motions, that just those actions and acts themselves somehow impress God and he blesses us because we do those things. That's the essence of legalism, that if we go to church, 
that if we read our Bible every day, that if we pray, that if we memorize Scripture, that if we give a certain amount of money, that because we do those things, that God blesses us. And so in legalism, the emphasis is on the actions themselves rather than what's really going on in the believer's own individual life and walk with God. So a grace orientation to the spiritual life doesn't mean that you don't have to read the Bible and you don't have to pray and you don't have to witness and you don't have to give. In other words, you don't have to be obedient. A grace orientation focuses on the fact that obedience is a response to God's grace and goodness because we want to align ourselves with his word in obedience to what he says and in gratitude to what he has given us, not in order to gain favor because we recognize that the grace that we receive from God is not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did. It is based on his character and his righteousness, which was given to us at salvation. And because we have his righteousness, we are saved. And that it is the, his righteousness that is the basis for God's grace blessings to us, not on what we do. Now, the reason we are to be obedient is because that is aligning ourselves with the way think God created things. It is aligning ourselves to the reality of God's word that when he has these various uh, mandates, commands in scripture and prohibitions, that that is designed for our well-being and our uh, our spiritual health and our physical health in some cases, our moral health, because that is how he has designed uh, designed reality. And so obedience isn't a bad thing. Obedience is, it's not there to gain God's grace, but it's there because by aligning with his word, we are in obedience to him. Now, when we look at various things in scripture that talk about obeying his commandments, we always have to pay attention to where we read those in the scripture. Are you reading in Exodus or Leviticus, or are you reading in John, or are you reading in uh, Galatians or Ephesians? Because the focus of obedience changes in terms of the context of these books historically and the dispensation in which they were given. In the Old Testament, obedience is directed to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, to Israel, because that was the controlling covenant for uh, the Old Testament period for Israel. But in the New Testament, the focus is on that which is revealed in the New Testament, the mandates and the prohibitions that are there for believers. Uh, grace doesn't mean that we don't have to do those things. It's just that we don't have to do those things in order to gain God's favor. But they are there for us to obey. God did, did not uh, have those mandates there simply to say this is a good idea. And it might be wise if you did this on occasion. He did that because this is expected of us. It, it is what we are responsible for and how we are to live our lives as members now of God's royal family. There is a code of conduct for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we disobey him, we're out of fellowship. We're in a position where God will bring discipline on us. But God always brings precedes that discipline with grace. And we see that principle of grace preceding judgment 
all of the way through Scripture, and even we get one of these despicable characters like Ahab, we just wonder why God just continues to reach out to him in grace. And even though uh, Ahab's uh, sins are much more obvious than most of ours, as sin is not something that is qualified in such a way that there are better sins and there are worse sins. All sin, any sin, no matter how light it is, is just as obnoxious to God and just as much a violation of his character, whether it is an egregious sin such as uh, mass murder or uh, child abuse or any of the other horrible things we can think of or whether it's telling a so-called little, little white lie, they all equally violate the character of God. Now, they may have worse consequences in ways, but in terms of their relationship to the absolute standard of God, his character, they, they are all equally sinful and equally obnoxious to God. And so God deals with us in grace just as he deals with Ahab. Now, as we come to 1 Kings 20, we're going to go through the whole thing this morning because it's a it's rather, even though it's lengthy, there are some uh, 43 verses here. It's rather simple to cover. It involves uh, a couple of different battle scenes, battles that take place between uh, Ahab, the king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, and Ben-Hadad II, who is the king of uh, Aram, which is now referred to as Syria. Seems like things never change. We still have conflict between Damascus and Jerusalem. And what we see, just to give you a brief summary, is at the beginning we have this uh, act of Ben-Hadad, who's just a drunken bully, coming down with 32 allies to try to uh, intimidate Ahab into giving up all of his wealth and everything and just uh, easily... Uh, giving over all of his gold and silver and riches and and people and just to free just to let the uh, Syrians or the Arameans come in and plunder the northern the northern kingdom, but God comes along and says sends a prophet to Ahab and says I'm going to give you victory. What a gracious thing! We've seen how horrible Ahab is, and this victory that God gives him is pure grace. Ahab doesn't deserve it. Ahab, as you start to read this and you see this invading army coming in from the north, perhaps the first thing that would occur to you is, okay, now we're going to see another stage of divine discipline in the northern kingdom as they are defeated militarily. But as you read further, and God sends a prophet to tell Ahab that he's going to give him victory over, over Ben-Hadad, uh, you're just, wait a minute, what is going on here? They just, just shocks you a little bit. Why is God being so good to Ahab? And it doesn't have anything to do with Ahab. What a great picture of salvation. God saved you because it didn't have anything to do with you. God's going to deliver Ahab and the northern kingdom militarily, and it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with something uh, prior to all of that, and that is the character of God and his plan and his purposes for the northern kingdom. It goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, and it goes back to aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. And so God is continuing to deal with Israel on the basis of these these covenants, on the basis of his character, and not on the basis of who they are and what they do. And so uh, there's going to be this first great victory that's covered in about the first 25 verses of the 
of the chapter, and then there's a second invasion, a second battle at Aphek. Aphek, as Ben-Hadad decides, oh, well, his, uh, they just won because their god's a god of the mountains, and we were in the mountains, so now we're going to fight him on the plains, and our god's a uh, god of the plains, and so we'll... Uh, our plains god is going to kick their mountain god if we t- get in the right location. And so they just have this very strange thinking to, to our way of thinking. And again, there's a defeat that takes place. And then following this, uh, we see that there is another little episode where a prophet, another prophet comes to uh, Ahab, and we go this through this little uh, scenario of, of street theater as his prophet acts out, acts out this drama in front of the, in front of the king that is not unlike things that other prophets have done. And in the process of that, there's going to be the judgment announced on Ahab because he has continued to resist the grace of God. So let's begin. First verse. Now Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all of his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him. Now, these would probably be uh, smaller uh, kings of small uh, city-states in the area of of, uh, of Aram, which is, if you, here's a map. This shows Israel and the area to the north going up into uh, modern Syria all the way up towards Turkey, over towards northern Iraq. This would uh, entail certain regional potentates and city-state leaders, and so they've all gathered together probably under some sort of uh, intimidation from Ben-Hadad, and they have joined with him. Let's go out and plunder the Jews. They're an easy target. They don't have the great military might that that Omri Ahab's father had, and so there's easy plunder. Let's go and and uh, we can rape, pillage, and plunder, literally, and we can have a great time. And so they head off, and he sends his messengers into Samaria, the capital city of, of uh, the northern kingdom, which is located on the map. Uh, if you look there, it's located uh, down towards the... Uh, towards, actually, it's not on that map. It would be just off the bottom. You have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, Shechem down towards the bottom. It's just up up north of there. And so they come down, and they're going to surround uh, the city of Samaria. And then he sends in these, these negotiators and to, to Ahab. And they say to him, this is what Ben-Hadad says, verse 3, Your silver, your gold are mine, and your loveliest wives and children are mine. Now, how do you think Ahab would respond? Well, let's protect everybody. We're going to engage in warfare. But Ahab, I think, is showing a certain amount of diplomatic skill here. And he is wanting to draw Ben-Hadad out in terms of his real motivations and what he's going to do. And so he decides that he is going to uh, say, okay, I'll give them to you. And uh, we'll see where that leads. Verse 4, he says, the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So he's sort of calling Ben-Hadad's bluff a little bit, and the messengers come back to Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad decides, well, I just, I just didn't ask for enough. If he's going, willing to give it up, I'm going to push him a little more. And so that's what he's doing. He's just acting like a typical uh, bully coming in. He wants to... Uh, 
uh, knock Ahab around a little bit and run off with all of his valuables. So he sends another me- other messengers, and they say to Ahab in verse 5, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow at this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes they will put in their hands and take it. So we're going to send the troops in there to just completely ravage all of Samaria tomorrow. So at this time, uh, Ahab calls his council together and explains things, what's going on to them, and says, now, notice what they've done. This man is just a troublemaker. He's, we, he's proven that case by the way he handled it, that uh, there's no just cause for Ben-Hadad to be there. He's just a, uh, a bully trying to knock Israel around. And so uh, Ahab says, notice how this man just seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders then said, well, don't listen or consent. Let's, uh, let's uh, hold fast, and if he wants a battle, we'll give it to him. In verse 9, therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell the Lord, my lord the king, notice how respectful he is in the diplomatic interchange, tell my lord the king, all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. Notice he... The way he expresses this actually in the Hebrew isn't I cannot do, it is I may not do. He's, he's being very uh, tactful in the way that he is uh, handling the situation. And so he's just, uh, he says, uh, it's just not possible for me to do that. And so the messengers then go back and they bring the word to Ben-Hadad. And so Ben-Hadad swears an oath, much like the oath that Jezebel swore against Elijah we saw in the previous chapter. The gods do so to me, and more also, if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. In other words, uh, he's just saying the May I, in my life, if I haven't reduced Samaria to just a couple of handfuls of dust by this time tomorrow. And this isn't just a flippant saying. Oaths like this were considered very serious uh, in the ancient world. So he is putting his own life on the line, uh, as it were. So Ahab answers in verse 11, tell him, let not the, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who, who takes it off. Uh, don't boast as if you, in other words, don't act as if you've already won the battle yet. We haven't even fought, and don't uh, don't uh, take your victory for granted. And so uh, when Ben-Hadad heard that message, he gathered his kings together, and they decided to prepare for battle by getting drunk. Now, that's always a great idea, you know, right away that that uh, their orientation to reality is a little off, that they're uh, overwhelmed by their own arrogance and blinded by their own arrogance. And so they decide to prepare for battle by just having a great, great party. And before noon, uh, they're, already, uh, they're already drunk, and their ability to think clearly is, has been destroyed. And it's at this time that a prophet 
comes to Ahab, verse 13. And, and the key to passages like this, when you're reading them, you say, well, why in the world do we need to pay attention to this? This just seems like, like this history of a battle in Israel. What is its, what's the spiritual impact here? Pay attention to what God is doing through the prophet. And that happens about three times through this chapter, and that gives you the orientation as to how it has application for us. Paul said that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And that applies, when he said that, primarily all they had was the Old Testament. So that applies to passages passages like this. So this prophet, unnamed prophet. Now remember Elijah at the end of the last chapter, oh Lord, there's no one left but me. So this chapter through through these unnamed prophets, God is showing that There are other prophets there in the northern kingdom that are just as obedient as Elijah, and they haven't bowed the knee to Baal either. As the Lord had said in uh, his discussion with Ahab, there are 7,000. Remember that number. It'll come up in a minute. 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So this is one of them. This prophet approached Ahab in verse 13, says, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly how large this army was that Ben-Hadad had with him, but they probably outnumber the Israelites 10 or 15 to 1. And it's a huge number when you've got this kind of a coalition force gathered together just against a small Israel and the city of Samaria. And so God's promise is that it doesn't matter how big the opposition is, uh, the battle is mine, not yours, and I will deliver it into your hand today. Why? And you shall know that I am Yahweh. Now, wait a minute, Ahab. Didn't you get that figured out just, you know, a few months ago when we were up there on Mount Carmel and God brought down fire from heaven and uh, you lost all of your... Uh, false priests and all the priests of Baal and the Asherah were, were executed. Didn't that make an impression on you? No, it didn't. And see, there's an important point there that you ought to remember is no matter how great the miracle or how powerful the, the theophany of God is, that the real issue in life doesn't have to do with people's reason or their experience. It has to do with their volition. And when their volition is set against God, it doesn't matter how much evidence is put in front of him, in front of them, that they may have a superficial emotional change for a short time, but if they have set their heart against God, it's not long before they go back to their old ways. Uh, Peter called that a dog uh, returning to its uh, it's vomit over in Second uh, Peter is they just keep going back to the same old lousy uh, way of thinking and way of living. And so once again, Ahab has to have a little extra sensory uh, demonstration of God's power and God's reality. And so, uh, so Ahab says, okay, God's going to Deliver us by whom? How is he going to do it? So not only do we have in this, in this chapter that God's saying, I'm going to give you victory, but God is also going to give the means to victory. A right thing has to be done in a right way. So Ahab says, by whom? That is, by whom are we delivered? And he said, the prophet said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. This would be 
Uh, that gives you the idea that these are a bunch of bureaucratic administrators. Now, that's not the idea here. These were the key leaders that came out of different regions who formed up in an elite uh, group of, uh, of warriors within the uh, Israelite army. These were the, this is the delta force of the, of the uh, northern kingdom's army, and these are the young men, the, their prime warriors, who are going to be the ones to deliver them. And so uh, he said, who will set the battle in order? And the prophet said, you are. You will be the one to take, you Ahab, you'll be the one to take the initiative. So verse 15 and 16 describes the gathering for battle. He mustered the young leaders of the provinces. These are all of the, uh, all of the key young warriors that they have in, in the nation. There were 232. After them, he mustered all the people of all the children of Israel. 7,000. Didn't we see that number just recently? Wonder if there's a correlation. I think that, that, that it's, this can't be coincidence. It has to be reminding us of what God had told Elijah that there were 7,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to, to Baal and it was those positive believers who were responding to the call for troops. And it shows once again that it is believers who are rightly oriented to the Word of God and rightly oriented to an understanding of God's plan and purposes in history who understand the importance of the nation and the defense of the nation. And these are the ones that respond uh, to the call. And so they go out at noon, and verse 16, Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 helping him were getting drunk at the command post. So they are well prepared now for defeat. And the young leaders, these uh, uh, young warriors, come out first. And so as these 252 are coming out, Ben-Hadad sees them. He's told that, well, there's some young men coming out, and it's too small of a group to be to be an armed attack. So he's not sure, well, are we being attacked? Or they want, are they coming out to negotiate? So what are we going to do? And that's the point of verse 18. If they've come out for peace, take them alive. And if they've come out for war, well, take them alive again. Just They're such a small group, just surround them and take them all alive. But as they did that, because of the uh, tactics of these young warriors, when the uh, Aramean army surrounded them, they attacked. Now, that's always great when you're surrounded. You don't have to decide which direction to attack. You just attack in every direction. And so they did, and they uh, each man killed his man. They wiped just about wiped out the Syrian army, and they fled. And the other 7,000 came out, and they pursued them, Ben-Hadad, back to uh, Syria. And then in verse 21, we see Ahab now coming out. Notice he's been in the background, leading from the rear until the victory is accomplished. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots, killed the Syrians with a great slaughter, and the prophet came to the king of Israel again. Now, again, we see God directing things. Go strengthen yourself. Okay, Ahab, you need to go prepare because this isn't the end of this. They're going to come back. And so now you have a warning, and you need to strengthen your defenses and gather your troops and prepare for the second invasion because by the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. And so we uh, then see the second attack, which comes up uh, in the next verse. Get the right slide up here. Okay, there we go. 
And this is going to take place at Aphek. Now, there are several villages and towns in Israel that are named Aphek, and most believe that this refers to the uh, Aphek that is near the present-day Ein Gev, E-I-N in Hebrew refers to a spring. And so this re- relates to a spring on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You see uh, a Aphek there with a question mark indicating that that's sort of a educated guess as to its location. This is on what is now known as the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights has always been in dispute between Syria and Israel. And right now Israel has had control since the uh, uh, Yom Kippur War in 73. And uh, we've driven up on that a few times. And it is a important strategic location. It's just this escarpment that rises up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and gives them about a 1,500 foot of elevation over the west side of the Sea of Galilee where Tiberias is located in a number of of Jewish cities, and until uh, the uh, Israelis took control of the Golan Heights back in 73, the Syrian army would sit up there with their artillery and just randomly lob shells across the Sea of Galilee into Tiberias and all all their villages. So those who lived there never knew when they would come under these artillery attacks because the Syrians controlled uh, controlled the high ground. That's why there's such an ongoing debate and it's such a military issue today, who controls this high ground, because if, if it goes back to Syria, then it, it virtually puts the northern part of Israel under the guns of, of Syria in a, in a terrible way. I think it will virtually uh, mean the what could mean the end of, of Israel. It's just a, an act of self-defeat. And so here's a couple of pictures of what the area looks like uh, up to the north. It's, it's uh, on the, excuse me, on the west side there, uh, east side rather. Uh, it's rather flat, and it's a great area to maneuver tanks today, chariots back then. And so this is the area where uh, Ben-Hadad wanted to uh, wanted to have the next the next battle, so we've come to verse twenty three then the servants of the of the king of Syria said to him, "Their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they are stronger than we were, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. See this is what happens in human viewpoint when nations and leaders are operating. Uh, apart from a biblical framework of truth, because you have to reinterpret reality in terms of your rejection of God. And so you make fundamentally flawed decisions. And this is the same kind of thing that we see going on in the world today as world leaders in the West uh, seek to continue to act as if Islam is not the militant radical religion that the Quran presents it to be. And whenever you hear uh, presidents from President Bush to President Obama talking about Islam being a peaceful religion, this is wrong. In Islam speak, they are a religion of peace for those who are in the house of peace, those who have submitted to Allah. Another error you will frequently hear people say is, well, they worship the same God as the Christians and the Jews. And they don't. The God of, uh, of Islam is the God of Abraham and Ishmael, 
and he's the God who hates Jews and is going to destroy, have all Jews and Christians destroyed in the end times. That's not the same God as you have in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In the Bible, the Old Testament for Israel, for Jews and Christians, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the Jews are his chosen people, and he will always bless them, and he will eventually restore them to their land. And so this is a God that's very different from the Allah of the Quran and the Hadith and the other books of, uh, of Islam. So we have to have leaders who are properly oriented to reality, and when they are divorced from reality, and that always comes back to a religious issue. Everything goes back to religion. Everything goes back to your ultimate view of reality, and so that when you are operating on a, a reality that is defined by Darwinism, when you are operating on a, a, on a reality that is defined by relativism, when you are defined by a reality that rejects biblical truth, then you're living in a, a dream house. You're living completely divorced, uh, divorced from reality. And I was watching a, a television uh, news show yesterday evening, and there was a pastor in Fort Worth, black pastor, who was just extremely articulate, and he was stating this very thing about why so many of the policies of the present uh, administration need to be fought vigorously is because they are built on a Darwinian foundation, an evolutionary worldview. They are not based on a biblical worldview. This affects their view of life and the value of life in health care. It affects their view of climate. It affects their view of uh, uh, the use of uh, natural resources. All of these things are affected by how you view reality. And if you do not believe there is a, uh, a God like the God of the Bible, who is the creator God of the heavens and the earth, then you're going to take one view. And if you consistently are consistent with your belief that the God of the Bible is the creator, then you will take a different view. And if you don't realize that, then there's a lot of homework you need to do in terms of studying, uh, studying the scripture and studying the issues of the day. But we see this thing going, same kind of thinking going on. A, uh, an army is, and a nation is going to base their military policy on a false view of reality. And so they're going to attack Israel because they think, yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just a hill God. He's not a plain God. And so we'll, we'll take them out on the, par- on the prairie, on the plains, where we have greater maneuverability for our cavalry and our chariot corps. That's expressed in verse 25. And so when the spring of the year came, in verse 26, uh, they muster the troops and they attack, and the children of Israel also muster their troops in verse 70, uh, verse 27, and they go against them. But they, there's quite a difference in the size as expressed in the end of, or the middle of verse 27. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. They're just overwhelmed. What a great image that is. They're just this small little uh, group of, uh, of people there in comparison to the enormous uh, number of troops that the Syrians or the Arameans have, uh, have uh, mustered. And then God speaks, verse 28. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said... The Lord is the God of the hills. Notice, God takes this personally. 
before he was trying to prove to, or demonstrate to Ahab, rather, demonstrate that he was God, now he's going to demonstrate to the Syrians that he's no little small hill god. And so his honor, his character, his person is at stake. And so now he is going to, uh, once again, deliver Ahab. doesn't have anything to do with Ahab or what he's done or hasn't done. It has everything to do with God and his character once again. And so these two armies come together. They have uh, seven days where they're opposite each other, and they're rattling the shields, and they're yelling taunts back and forth and getting all worked up and prepared for battle. And when the day of the battle comes, we read at the end of verse 29, the children of Israel killed a 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. Now, in the ancient world, if you lost a 100 troops in one day, that was a serious defeat. So we can multiply that by a 1,000, I think. Is that right? Multiply that by a 1,000, and we have uh, a, an extremely serious defeat, and they fled, the rest that survived fled into Aphek, into the city, and then a wall fell on them and killed 27,000 of the men who were left, and uh, Ben-Hadad fled, went into the city. He's hiding out in the rubble somewhere where he managed to survive. And so then we get to the last part of this, which is the real focal point of this this whole chapter. They, His servants find him, come to him, and uh, and they tell him, look, we've heard that the kings of Israel have mercy. The word there is chesed. It's the word for being loyal to a covenant. It presupposes that there is some some covenant that existed between uh, the Arameans and the northern kingdom preceding this. And so that they're saying, look, they'll go back and we can plead with them and they will uh, be faithful to that covenant and they're not going to kill you. So we're going to dress up for them and put on sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads because this is how they would dramatize their repentance, their sorrow, and their obedience and submission to the king of Israel, and maybe he will spare their life. So they go through this drama, and they dress up in their costume, and they go out to Ahab and plead with that for Ben-Hadad's life. And Ahab is going to release him. He's going to let him Live, And they come out to him in verse 33. They say, your brother Ben-Hadad, uh, and that's how they describe Ben-Hadad as brother. He's, he's other royalty. Royalty doesn't like to execute other royalty once regicide begins. You never know when it's going to stop. And so they don't really like to kill other kings. So uh, Ahab says, bring him here. And he came out, and in verse uh, 34, Ben-Hadad says, well, the cities which my father took from your father... I will restore. Now, this goes back to Ben-Hadad I, who had uh, taken, let's go back to our map here, who had taken the area of, of Naphtali, which is most of this area coming up around the west side of the Sea of Galilee, all the way up to Dan. This is a territory that was given to the tribe of Naphtali, and that had been taken by Ben-Hadad uh, maybe 50 or 60 years earlier. So he's going to give all that land back to Israel. That's described in <clears throat> in 1 Kings chapter 15, uh, verses uh, 13 down through down through 20. And so Ahab is going to make a treaty with him, send him away, and give him his life. Now, verse 35. Now we get to the real spiritual point of the passage. So you have to go through all those that background just to get to the real issue. 
Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. We still don't know who these prophets are. They're not named. They're just part of that 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. A certain man of the sons of the prophets came to, said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. So what he does, he goes to one of his companions, literally in the group, in, 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 the, in the Hebrew, and he says, hit me. And the idea is he wanted him to just, somebody to just knock him hard upside the head so that he would have a head wound and he would be all bloodied and that it would look as if he was, had come out of the battle. And so he is doing this under the authority of God. And so, you know, the person who he goes to would have, would have understood that, but he just can't do it, much as many of us say, no, I'm really not going to do that. And so this was a command from God, though. A command from the prophet is a command from God, and so the act of disobedience is disobedience against God, which brings immediate consequences. See, sometimes God precedes grace with judgment. Sometimes the situation is so severe, so extreme, so important, that there's immediate judgment, and so the prophet announces the judgment on this uh, this individual and says, because you haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion will kill you. And so that's what happens. He leaves, and he's gone down the road a couple of miles, and a lion attacks him and kills him. That's instant divine discipline sent unto death for disobeying a direct command from God under these circumstances. And God uses this. It reminds us of the episode with the uh, prophet back in uh, uh, back in First Kings chapter 12 when you have the young prophet and the old prophet, and the young prophet was sent to Jeroboam, and the old prophet decided, the young prophet was told not to stop, not to eat with anybody, and an old prophet came to him and said, Ah, oh, God told me to have you come over for Sunday lunch. And the young prophet did, and as a result, God disciplined him also by using using a lion. So this prophet here in chapter 20 says, in verse 37, he finds another man and says, Strike me, please. Now, he's heard about the first man, so he finds the nearest axe handle he can and inflicts a wound so that he's uh, going to be all bloodied and bruised and looks as if he's just come out of the battle because he has to be prepared for this little uh street drama that he's going to put on, this little skit he's going to put on before the king. And they didn't have the good makeup we have today, so he had to make it look realistic. So in verse 38, the prophet comes to the king. He's disguised. He's all wrapped up in bandages so the king won't identify him. And he's standing there by the road, and as Ahab comes by, he cries out to the king and says, Your servant went into the midst of the battle, and there a man came and uh, a man came over and brought a man to me, a prisoner, uh, and said, guard this prisoner. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life, or you shall pay a talent of silver. In other words, this, this wounded prophet who's playing a role here says, okay, I was in the battle, and I was given a prisoner to guard, and I was told that if the prisoner escaped, then I would pay for it with my life or with a talent of silver. Now, a talent of silver uh, would be about 75 pounds of silver, and that's worth about $15,000 on today's market. But today, a ounce of silver is only worth about 16 or $17 an ounce. Prior to the discovery of America, uh, silver reached its highest value at about six or $700 an ounce. And earlier in the Middle Ages, silver was worth about $400 an ounce. So I don't know how much it was worth in the ancient world, but this is a tremendous amount of money that was that would 
been impossible for this individual to have paid in order to redeem his life from the death penalty. So he goes on to say, the the, uh, prophet goes on to say, while your servant was busy here and there, then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided. And so Ahab just says, well, that's your punishment. You just, you let the guy escape, so you're going to have to uh, lose your life. And so at that point, the prophet pulls off the bandage to reveal who he is, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets, and the prophet says, well, thus says the Lord. See, this is the same kind of drama Nathan had before David, uh, going before the king and putting on this little uh, drama or play or telling a parable, and then the king announces, well, this is what the judgment should be, and that's the judgment that he will he will receive. And so he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. That was Ben-Hadad. God had intended for him to be, to be killed. Uh, because you have let him live, then therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. And so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased. That means he's angry and depressed because God has just given him the death penalty for his disobedience. God extended grace to him and grace to him and grace to him, more and more evidence of his reality and of his existence, and Ahab continued to disobey or to partially obey, and God brought judgment. Now, as I said in the introduction, obedience is a critical issue in the believer's life. The elements in a believer's life that are important are faith, because we trust in God, we believe his word, and we trust in his promises. Because we believe his word is true, that leads to the implementation and application of his word, and that is obedience. When we get into the uh, New Testament, in John chapter 14, as we close, let's just turn over to John 14 and look at a couple of statements that Jesus made before we, we finish up. In John chapter 14, Jesus makes it very clear what the issues are in terms of obedience. John 14, 15, Jesus said to his disciples, this is between the upper room and the Passover celebration and the Garden of Gethsemane. He's giving them their marching orders for the church age. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Wait a minute, Lord, that sounds legalistic. No, it is a demonstration of our love for him, our response to his grace, to be obedient to God's commandments. And then skip down to verse 23. Jesus says it again, just in case you missed it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is a promise related to fellowship. When you look at these words, make our abode with him, that's related to the word for abiding. We're to abide in Christ. That's a word for fellowship. And so this is a depiction of that uh, intimate fellowship that the believer has with the Father. It is related to uh, continuing to be obedient to him as a sign of our love for him and our response to his grace and all that he has provided for us. The same thing was true in Israel. In Deuteronomy, they were told that they were to, that those who loved the Lord were to keep his commandments. This is a principle that goes throughout 
the Scriptures. So in order to show our love for him, to keep his commandments, we have to know what his commandments are, which means we have to study his word. We have to know his word. We have to know what pertains to Israel in the Old Testament, what pertains to the church in the New Testament. But it is by keeping his commandments, by learning to walk by the Holy Spirit, abide in Christ, and not stay, not get out of fellowship or stay out of fellowship for long, that the believer is in a position where God, the Holy Spirit, matures us and brings us to and, and brings spiritual growth into our lives so that we can mature and honor and glorify him. Those principles are exhibited by Ahab. We see the negative consequence, which is sin unto death. Next time we'll come back and see uh, how that is implemented or how, that, how his disobedience continues, how God's grace continues, but the punishment is not removed uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word, be reminded that your grace, uh, while it is abundant and while it has supplied everything, your grace is not at odds with obedience and with divine discipline, that we are called to be obedient to you as believers, to live in obedience to you according to the standards of your royal family. But when we are disobedient, that brings divine discipline from a loving father, and that loving discipline is designed to bring us back to a position of spiritual uh, fellowship and spiritual growth. Father, for those who may be here this morning, they're unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, obedience in this sense is not part of salvation. Uh, obedience in the sense of believing the gospel is part of salvation. That is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. John 3.36 says that those who do not obey, and the word that is used there really doesn't mean obey, but those who do not are not persuaded, do not believe, then they will suffer eternal condemnation. But those who believe have eternal life. So all that you need to do at the in order to ensure your salvation is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, to simply believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge each of us with the things that we have studied this morning, that we might be reminded that the real issues in life have to do with our spiritual life and our relationship to you. And we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing hymn. Closing hymn is number uh, 406, My Hope is in the Lord. My Hope is in the Lord. Please stand, and I'm going to ask uh, Doug Carn to please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace blessings from the gift of your Son who died as our Savior on the cross to the freedom that we have today to study your word. We thank you for the provision of your word and faithful pastor teacher to study and teach us your word. Father, as we go on our way, we pray that you'll give us safety and as we return to our homes and throughout the week. Father, we also pray for those who are fighting for our freedom, that you would give them safety and that you would make their lives a testimony to them, to those who that they encounter in other parts of the world. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.